something this week. Uh, a family, a Christian family, and uh, they uh, they were all talking about how good God was. And uh, but they were saying it, and, and the look on their face and the expression on their face was kind of deadpan. And y'all know who Ben Stein is, you know the 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 the, the economist, the dry dry eyes guy, you know the deadpan. That's what they were like. And God is good, and you know they. <laughs> I thought somebody needs to tell their face, uh, you know, about this. You know. Uh, have you ever seen that? A lot of people they 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 thank God for His goodness. Because they know they're supposed to, but they miss the joy of it. They, they lose out on it, the joy of being saved. The psalmist said, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And if the psalmist believed that that joy needed to be restored, then the, the idea of that verse is it's possible to lose that joy. There are times in our lives we need to be restored again in that joy. And I'll tell you, I get tired sometimes being around Christian folks that are, that I understand people have a bad day. I, that's, I'm not saying that. But people there just constantly in the in the mully grubs. Have you ever noticed that they they just go around and all the time they're talking about how bad things are, and uh, yeah, I know there are times there are times that things are bad. But uh, I, I was my sister sang a song a number of years ago with a, a trio from her college, and uh, the title of the song was "God Wants to Hear You Sing When the Waves Are Crashing Around You, When the Fiery Darts Around You." And your strength is almost gone. God wants to hear you sing. And I love the story of Paul and Silas. I mean, they had been beaten, not for doing wrong, but for doing right. They had been thrown in jail. If anybody could have had their feelings hurt and said they were falsely accused, I think Paul and Silas certainly could have done that. And there they are in the center of the jail, the midnight. I don't know about you, but you know, for me, it's hard to sing at midnight even when I'm not in the middle of a jail or a prison. But here they are, being mistreated, mishandled, sitting in the middle of the prison, and they're singing. They're praising God. I hope that we get to a place in our lives, in our Christian lives, at some point where we learn to give Him thanks and praise even in the midst of the valleys. I'm not saying that the valleys are easy, but oh, He is a great God. And He certainly can bring us through. It's amazing how many times in Scripture... God helps to bring people through the valley. He doesn't remove it. He doesn't make the valley go away oftentimes, but He certainly gives strength. And He walks through the valleys with us. And the psalmist wrote that in Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Thou art with me. Oh, what a joy to know that. What a comfort to know that. Well, that's not the message this morning. Let's turn to Matthew chapter number 8. Matthew chapter number 8. And... uh, <clears throat> Jesus had just begun His earthly ministry. He uh, walks along the Sea of Galilee in chapter number 4 and <clears throat> calls some of His disciples. And they, uh, they straightway leave their nets and their boats and they follow Him and their families. And uh, there's a lot to be preached on and what a wonderful passage that is to talk about surrendering to the Lord and giving our will to Him. And uh, he journeys through the country, and people begin to follow him from Galilee and some other places. And he goes up on the top of a mountain in chapter number 5, and we, he begins to preach a sermon to them. And we call it the Sermon on the Mount. Talk about somebody that's long-winded. Uh, Jesus took three chapters to preach his message to them. And uh, he tells them things that some of them had never heard before. 
He tells them things that were so contrary to the, the norm of the day that they were living in. Even the religious leaders of the day did not think in the terms that Jesus taught them on in the Sermon on the Mount. And he gets done with the Sermon on the Mount, and it brings us to chapter number 8. And uh, we begin to see God do some, uh, Jesus do some mighty works. And understand this, that while Jesus was here on this earth, the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, He humbled Himself and took upon Him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man, but He was still all God. He still had the power that God had. And he even told one of his disciples one time, he said, Don't you know that I could call and ask my father now, and he would send down legions of angels. And so even though he was man, and in all points tempted, the Bible says, like as we are, yet without sin, he's certainly accustomed and knows intimately the feelings of our infirmities from the book of Hebrews, it says, (coughs) that while he was all man, he suffered the things that we suffered. He understood the temptation that we, under, that we go through. And that he was also all God. And so he begins to do some miraculous things in chapter number 8. And we find several specific instances where he has the power over disease as he begins to heal in verse number 5. And then he has power over men. And we get down to verse number 14 and following. And then we get down to verse number 18 and find that he has the right and the authority to tell these men to follow him. And then we get to verse number 23. And again, Jesus spends a lot of this chapter dealing with his might and his power to be able to overcome different things. And verse number 23, we find a very uh, familiar passage of the disciples uh, entering into a ship. And so let's begin reading there, if you will. And when, his, uh, when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves. I think it's important for us to understand uh, and to read our Bible as though we have never read it before. Uh, sometimes we've read it so many times that we gloss over things and it doesn't quite impact us the way that it should. This was not a small storm. I remember a number of years ago when uh, my parent and I was still living at home as a child, my parents took us occasionally uh, over to Lake Wales, Florida. There was a small uh, hotel there, motel there that had a lake and they had some canoes and paddle boats you could go out on. And I remember as a young man, my dad teaching me how to paddle a canoe and how to steer it and how to sit in it to get the nose out of the water and, and uh, be able to steer it well. And I remember the first time he let me go out in it by myself. And, uh, boy, I was, I was some kind of uh, man at that point. I mean, I was all of eight years old, and I was a man's man out there in my own canoe by myself and uh, paddling around that lake. And, boy, I thought I just had it all down. And as is so often the case in southern Florida in the afternoons of a, a, a thunderstorm cropped up, and the winds picked up and began to blow. And I remember sitting out there as an eight or nine, ten-year-old young man. I don't remember how exactly old I was, but I was young. I remember trying to, to paddle that canoe to the shore, and every time I tried to turn into the uh, to the shore, the wind would catch it, and the front end of the canoe would weather vane. And no matter how hard I tried to steer it, it kept going the wrong direction, and was blowing me across the lake, away from the motel and the safety. And then the waves began to come up. And you know how it is in those little canoes. There's not a whole lot to the sides of them. And there were times that water would splash into the canoe. And I thought, I'm going to sink here and I'm going to die 10 years old. 
Mom and dad are going to wonder where I'm at. Just figure I ran away from home or something. They'll find some washed up canoe on the shore. And I'll tell you, I was scared. For about a half hour, I fought that thing. And lightning began to strike and uh, they're, they're all around you. You don't want to be out on a lake when the lightning comes. And just, I was scared half out of my wits. I finally made it back to shore. I, I figured a way to, to, to get the nose of the canoe down where it wouldn't blow in the wind. I sat more in the middle of it and, and rode in. But boy, I was, I was scared. The truth is, as I read this passage, the storm that this is speaking of here was far greater than anything I've ever been in. So much so that the Bible says here in verse number 24 that it was a great tempest. Insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves. These waves were crashing all on them. Understand, they're in fear of their life. And the Bible says in verse 25, And His disciples came to Him and awoke Him, saying, Lord, save us. We perish. I want to preach this morning on just five words out of one verse. And that is the phrase, Lord, save us. We perish. Father, we pray that You'll bless the message. Speak to our hearts. Lord, may Your Holy Spirit guide us and direct us. And, Father, may we learn from this passage what You would have us to learn. If there's someone here today that does not know You as their Savior, I pray that today would be that day that they would trust You as their Savior. For Christians that are here today and perhaps our faith has grown weak or maybe cold or stale, I pray that You would help to revive our faith and strengthen us. May we have more resolve to trust You. I pray that You'll bless all that we say and do in Jesus' name. Amen. These disciples were in fear of their lives. And we find here a, a phrase that is stated by the disciples as they go down to the Lord. And the phrase is simply this, Lord, save us, we perish. It sounds like such a simple prayer, but I believe this is probably one of the most insightful and most powerful prayers found in Scripture. As we get to this verse of Scripture, there's something that we find in this short little prayer that just begins to pop out at us and that we understand. And that was this, that the disciples realized that there was a problem that existed that they had no power to solve. There was something that was beyond their strength. It was beyond their might. They weren't able to do this. I don't know all of the background. I didn't see the, I wasn't there to be an eyewitness account of this. But the fact that Jesus is in the hold of the boat asleep and the disciples are crying out in fear causes me to at least suspect that the disciples were on deck of that boat doing everything that they could, bailing water, uh, rowing as hard to the, as they could to get to shore, whatever it took to try to salvage their lives. I believe that these disciples were busy doing all that they could. And yet they come to a place where all that they could muster up was not enough. You ever been there? The truth is, before we were saved, there was a problem that we had that was too great for us to solve. We could not save ourselves. The Bible's quite clear on that. <coughs> the fact that even our righteousness in God's eyes are as filthy rags. The very best that we have to offer to Him looks as filthy rags. The fact that Ephesians chapter number 2 and verse number 8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, 
lest any man should boast. I was talking to some folks the other day, and I said, if we believe that, that we can earn our way to heaven or do enough good to get to heaven, then we are sorely mistaken. The truth is, there's nothing that, that is good that we can do in order to save ourselves. And these disciples found themselves in a similar situation. They find themselves in peril of their life. That with a certainty they believed that if God did not intervene on their behalf, that they would perish. You say, how do you know that? Because they said that. Look what it says, verse 25. Lord, save us. We what? We perish. In other words, Lord, if you don't intervene on our behalf, we're going to die. These disciples learned something and noticed something here. and That was that there was a problem that was bigger than they could handle. There was a problem that they could not solve. The second thing I think that we notice from this particular prayer is the fact that they finally got to a place of understanding, and it took a while, I believe, for them to understand that they couldn't solve it. I mean, I believe that these guys were doing all that they could and thought, here, here we are, fishermen. We've been out on this Sea of Galilee so many times. We've been in storms like this before. We've come out of them alive. I'm sure that there was a temptation on their part to trust their own skills, to trust their own experience, and say, well, I believe I can get us out of this. And can I tell you this, that there is an arrogance among human beings that helps us to have this idea of, I can solve my problem. I don't need help. How oftentimes uh, I've had people offer help to me. And you know how we men are sometimes. We're like, no, I don't need any help. And we're trying to lift a thousand pound object or something or move it. And we all have that tendency. No, I want to do it myself. It is ingrained in us. I don't know how many times as a kid I was watching my son as he grew up. And he would try to do something that I knew he wasn't going to be able to do. And I'd say, here, let me help you. No, Dad, I want to do it by myself. And we chuckle and we look at that in kids and we think, how cute, as they try to do something that is far greater than them. But it's sad when we begin to become adults and we realize our limitations for us to continue thinking I can do it. When the truth is, I don't have the ability. I'm not able to. They understood their inability to solve it. It's expressed in the prayer that they prayed. Lord, save us. What were they saying? We can't do it. We don't have the ability. We don't have the strength. We don't have the might or the power. We cannot do it. There's a third thing I think the disciples understood that is expressed in this little five-word prayer. They had absolute assurance. They were fully convinced that Jesus could do it. They didn't have any doubt in their minds because they come to Him with the expression, Lord, save us. If they had doubt about Him just being another man and not having the power of God, then they would have said, well, He's not going to succeed any better than we are. He's down there asleep. He's just a man too. But there is something about them calling out to Jesus to come and fix the problem that causes us to understand that these disciples knew that while they did not have the power to solve the problem, Jesus did. He was the answer to their problem. It's interesting to me that oftentimes as I've read this passage and even sometimes used this passage 
to help encourage someone to come to Christ, to realize that they were lost and undone in their sin. They had a problem. They had a, a debt of sin that they could not pay. <coughs> there was not enough good that that man could do to pay and resolve the sin debt that he owed the payment for his own sin. And while I have used that often uh, to use as an illustration that we cannot do it, that we need to cry out and say, Lord, save us, and have absolute faith and trust in the fact that Jesus, while we cannot, He can. He is the way, the Bible says, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. He is the one that the Bible says, told the woman at the well, if you'd ask Me, I'll give you water that you'll never thirst again. He's the one that says, I'll give you everlasting life. He's the one that said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. These are the things we can put our faith in and anchor ourselves to. And if we're here today and we're not trusting Christ as our Savior, we don't know if we died right now we'd go to heaven. Or maybe we're trusting the fact that I've lived a good life. I've tried to do what's right. Can I tell you this? There's a problem that is bigger than you can solve. But Jesus can. The rich man came to Jesus and he said, uh, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus gave him several good things to do. He went away sorrowful because he began to realize every time I do something that I'm supposed to do that God tells me I should do to get inherit eternal life, even though I do it, it's still not enough. Why? Because his good works wasn't going to save him. Only the, the faith and the trust in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that Jesus did for him on Calvary was going to save him. What a wonderful thought. And then I think there's something else that we find in this passage that is very interesting. It's not part of the prayer, but it's part of the passage. In verse number 26, the Bible, or verse number 25, I'm sorry, the Bible says, And his disciples came to him, notice these three words, and awoke him. I'll be real frank with you. I believe that Jesus was so aware of the fact that He was God that He was, even though physically asleep, aware of what was going on in the boat. I don't think when He woke up that He was shocked to see the storm. I think He knew it was there. But here's an interesting thing that comes out of this passage that I don't know that we often look at, and that is this. I believe that since Jesus, being all God, was aware of the situation... Why would he be asleep? Why would he not come out on the deck and say, Fellas, here, why don't you all stand aside and let me take care of this for you? We find something here that I think is so important that is often missed, and that is this. God never forces himself on anyone. God, quietly in the shadows, was waiting for them to get to the place where they said, Lord, we cannot, but you can. Save us. They had to wake him up. They had to rouse him. They had to get him out of his sleep to come and be able to help them. And while I have used this passage so often, for those that are lost, to try to lead someone to Christ and share the gospel. The truth of the matter is this. These principles hold true for Christians. Think about this for a moment. How often do we push God out of the things of our life, saying, God, I can handle this. 
I don't need you here. And we push him to the back of the boat and he goes to sleep, let's say, figuratively according to this passage. He stands back and waits. He does not force himself upon us. I've heard people make this statement before. Pastor, why do bad things happen to good people? Sin brings the evil things into this world. There's no doubt about it. That's the price of sin. God's willing to say, I'll help you, but I'm not going to force myself on you. I need you to come to me of your own will with a humble spirit, realizing you cannot do it, but He can. How many times in our Christian lives have we said, Pastor, or to a friend of ours, uh, dear friend, I, I've got this problem and I just can't get victory over it. Why? Jesus promised us, there is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. But we're with that temptation, make a way of escape. Did He not? Why then would there be anything in our lives that we would have to come and say, I can't get victory? Or I'm struggling in this area. Could it be that we're still in the boat bailing and rowing as hard as we can and Jesus is asleep in the boat? Could it be that we've tried everything that we could do to solve the problem, not wanting to bother the Lord? While I do believe that this verse is so easily applied to those that are lost, to understand that there's a problem that they could not solve, to understand their weakness and their inability to solve it, to understand His power and His ability to solve it, and then to come to Him humbly and say, uh, we believe absolutely you can do it. We're asking you to do it. I came across a saying a number of years ago that I, I thought was a great, wonderful saying. The saying was this, faith is not believing that God can. Faith is trusting that He will. There's a difference between believing that God can do something and trusting that He will do it. I think we all understand a little bit of that. It's amazing to me how many times I can believe something, but I don't trust it. There, there was a time that I, years ago I took a bunch of teenagers to uh, Wonderworks. It's an amusement house that they have turned upside building. It looks like it's built upside down. And inside that building they had a ropes course. If you don't know what that is, you, you walk on these things that are hung by ropes and they put you in a harness and they have a steel track that's above you that you ride in and you can't, if you fall it catches you. You can't fall really. And uh, I looked at that thing and the kids wanted me to go on it and I thought, yeah, that's not too bad. I think I can do that. I, I'm an old fat man, but I can get up there and do some of that stuff. And so I thought, well, I'll get up there and do some of that. I'd watch these kids. I'd watch little six- and seven-year-old kids go all the way up to the top and ring the bell at the top, like seven, 75,000 stories high in the air. They run up these things. They don't care. They just didn't, didn't bother them. And, man, I started working my way up, and I'm going to ring that bell. And my, my kids, these, these high school senior boys, you know how they are. They're macho. And, and they, they try, to, try to make you feel like you're a little sissy. And they go, oh, come on, Pastor Greg, you're, you're chicken, aren't you? You're chicken. No, I'm not chicken. I'm going up there. You know, I'm going to do this thing. And I climb this thing up to the top. And I, I get up about ten feet in the air, look up, 
the vastness of space above me. And I started getting a little bit nervous. I thought, but these guys aren't going to beat me. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? And I told myself over and over again, this harness is rated for more pounds than I weigh. I, I know if I, if I miss the step or I slip off the rope, I'm not going to go more than an inch or two, and then I can put my feet under me and stand up again. I remember going up and higher and higher each level. And finally I came to a level, and I was on the thing, and I went to step out on the board, and I got two steps out. And I have never had fear so great that I froze until that moment. Never had that kind of fear again. But literally, I could not go the two steps back to the platform. I thought they were going to have to call the fire department to come in and get me. I'm not kidding. I, I know that sounds funny. I had that kind of fear. You know what the problem was? The problem was I believed that that harness would hold me. But I didn't trust it. There's a lot of us that believe that God can solve our problems. There's a lot of us that believe that God has the might and the strength and the power and the wherewithal to take the things that you and I do not have the strength and power and wherewithal to do. And we can believe it all day long. But there comes a point where we need to say, I'm going to trust Him to do it. I'm going to throw down the bale of water that I'm trying to bail the boat with. I'm going to put down the oars. And I'm going to go to Christ. And I'm going to say, Lord, save me. I perish. I can't do it. There's, There's a life that God wants us to live. The Bible refers to it as walking in the Spirit. Can I tell you this? Not one of us here has the might or the strength or the power to effectively do that. Not one of us. At some point we have to say, Lord, help me do this. I can't. I need your strength. I need your might. I need your power. And while the message today can certainly be applied to those that are lost, I want us to understand that as Christians... If we are not careful, we'll find ourselves so arrogant, so predisposed to our own abilities, and convinced that we have the might and the power and the wherewithal to handle life, that we do not come to God nearly as often as we should and say, Lord, save me. I perish. I need your help. I can't do this alone. I can't make it through this. I can't have victory in this area. I've got to have you and you alone. Wonderful, wonderful prayer. I think one of the most insightful prayers and one of the greatest powerful prayers of Scripture are found in these five little words. Lord, save us, we perish. Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed. Father, we're so thankful for your word. Lord, just a simple message, nothing profound today. But, Lord, the the might and the power of this truth is so unrealized in our lives. So often we, even in in our Christian walk, even though we're reading our Bibles, and even though we're praying, and even though we're striving to live in a way that our testimony is pleasing to You, Lord, so often we rely on our strength. We rely on our character. We rely on our 
our determination, our fervency. The truth is, Lord, there need to be times in our lives where we come to You and say, Lord, I can't. This is too great for me. It's too big of a problem. I cannot solve it. I've tried. I've labored. Lord, I need You. And the truth is, Lord, as we go through our Christian lives, over and over again, we find times that we fail. And I believe those are the times that we should have come to You and said, Lord, I can't do it. So, Lord, help us to rely daily upon You. Help us to get to the place of absolute surrender. Be yielded absolutely to the leading of Your Holy Spirit, to the empowering of His work in our lives. Lord, that we would not rest upon our own abilities, our own egos, our own personalities, our own character, but that we would rest upon You. Lord, may we leave it in Your hands, allow You to take care of the problems, deal with them in our lives. Lord, if there's someone here today that does not know You as Savior, they've never trusted You. Oh, they believe that You're a great God. They believe that You came to this earth, that You died on a cross to pay for their sins. But the Lord, the truth is they've never put their faith. They've never trusted You. And said, Lord, I'm just going to rest in You. Let You save me from my sin. I'm going to let the price that You paid for me on Calvary be sufficient. Not my works. Not the things that I can do. But You and You alone to save me from my sin. Lord, if that's the case, I pray that there would be someone here today that would trust You as their Savior. If they do not have that assurance today in their heart and their life that they have put that faith and that trust in You. Maybe they believe But Lord, perhaps they have not yet trusted in You. I pray that You would bless the invitation and speak to hearts. Use it as You would see fit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. With heads bowed and eyes closed, we don't have a pianist today, but we'll just have a few moments of silence. If God has spoken to your heart, perhaps you'd come to the altar and pray in your seat is fine. But if God has spoken to your heart, perhaps you would do business with Him. Are we coming to Him on a regular basis? And say, Lord, save us, we perish.